It is good to be back. It was uh, strange uh, going to another church when we were away. And one of the things I, I don't really like about going to visit other churches is I don't usually know anybody. Um, but this time I knew several people. It was kind of odd. I walked in, everybody was like, hi. They, uh, I think Sarah was kind of disgusted. This is my church. You know. The... Uh, and probably in a few months she's going to hear that on the podcast and I'll get a phone call. So that's okay. So anyways, if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. We're going to read it as we uh, go through it. We'll start at verse 37 and do the very last part of the book. Um, as we go through Genesis, and now we're in the uh, story of the life of Joseph, one of the great stories of the scriptures. So let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us your word and making us your people. And you have brought us to a passage this morning that looks easy, but where there's much more than meets the eye. So I ask that you would use it to give us wisdom and to lead us towards righteousness. Help us to learn from its example and to walk by faith and not by sight. Use it to encourage those who need encouragement and to strengthen and build our trust in you. And for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, the author, J.K. Rowling, first thought of Harry Potter while riding in a train. Already getting nods from all the Harry Potter fans. So she was riding in a train back in 1990, and she said, Harry just strolled into my head, fully formed. She worked on the book for several years, finding quiet moments while her daughter uh, napped, and several publishers, much to their later regret, turned down the manuscript uh, before one uh, finally took interest. And the rest, they say, is history. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is the seventh and final book in the Harry Potter series. That book was released on July 21st, 2007 uh, by Scholastic here in the United States. And it ended a series that began 10 years earlier in 1997 with the publication of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. As of June 2011, the seven-book series sold over 450 million copies. <coughs> That's a lot of books. That's more books than I have. <laughs> Hard to believe, I understand. But it's the fastest selling and the best selling book series in history. In fact, the last four books set consecutive records as the fastest selling books in history. And the last book, Deathly Howls, was released simultaneously globally in 93 countries. And it broke every known sales record as the fastest selling book ever. In its first day, first 24 hours, it sold 15 million copies, including more than 11 million in the United States and the UK alone. It's been translated into over 120 languages including Ukrainian, Swedish, and Hindi. 
And the books, with the seventh book split into two parts, have been made into an eight-part film series by Warner Brothers, and it's the highest-grossing film series of all time. The series also generated an enormous amount, a ton, of tie-in merchandise, making the entire Harry Potter brand worth in excess of $15 billion. And you can now take college courses about Harry Potter. <laughs> Knights of Old and Harry Potter is available at Georgetown. Battling Against Voldemort at Swarthmore, and Christian Theology and Harry Potter at Yale Divinity School. Just a small sample of the courses available. If you Google Harry Potter courses in U.S. colleges, it's a long list. Now, Joanne Rowling, that's her real name, Joanne Rowling has led a rags-to-riches life story, which she progressed from uh, before the publication of her first book, she was living on uh, the British equivalent of Social Security. And she moved to multimillionaire status within five years. And as of this past March, when the latest World Billionaires list was published uh, by Forbes magazine, they estimated her net worth to be in excess of $1 billion. She is the first female billionaire novelist. And again, according to Forbes, J.K. Rowling is the 30th wealthiest, wealthiest person in the United Kingdom, the 61st most powerful woman in the world, and there are only 1,139 people in the world richer than her. We love a good rags-to-riches story. We're fascinated to hear how people have risen from obscurity to fame and from poverty to wealth. It's the plot line of the best fairy tales and the most compelling uh, fiction and some of the greatest movies. And when it happens in real life, as it did to J.K. Rowling, it's simply somewhat stunning and amazing that these things still happen today. Well, Genesis 41 is a rags-to-riches story. It's a rags-to-riches story of Joseph and his transformation from a forgotten prisoner to what is essentially the prime minister. So let's turn to Genesis 41, and uh, we're going to see there, starting at verse 37, although I'm going to jump back a bit, we're going to see Joseph's rise to power. Joseph's rise to power. I say we're going to jump back because... We see right from the start that Pharaoh says he likes Joseph's proposal. He likes his plan. Well, what's the plan? You have to back up to get that. We go back to verse 33. It says, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are, are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. And so then we get to our passage today, starting at verse 37. Pharaoh here leads the way. It says, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, 
Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath, Penea, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Now this is somewhat remarkable because you have to remember when you come to this text that Pharaoh doesn't know God. He doesn't know who Elohim is. He doesn't know who Yahweh is. He probably doesn't know any Hebrew at all. He doesn't know the Hebrew God. He doesn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet he says, where can we find such a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, that may have been colored by his polytheistic beliefs, and the Egyptians had tons of gods. But nevertheless, if you remember, Joseph repeatedly asserted that God was at work here when he talked with Pharaoh. He said, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. The thing is fixed by God, and God will bring it about. And these assertions are beginning to inform Pharaoh. The man who thought himself a god was exalting the true God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And along with this, he saw that God's faithful man, Joseph, who'd been a slave for all of his grown years, was alone in his insight and understanding. He says, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. So Joseph is essentially made viceroy or prime minister by Pharaoh. Verse 39, he says, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Sorry, that was verse 40. So Joseph has gone from prison to the pinnacle of power in a single day. The morning had begun in prison as an imprisoned slave, and now he's second only to Pharaoh. Indeed, the immediate future of Egypt lays in his hands. And as we look at Joseph's life, it's clear the limelight, the power, the office, never really gets to him. He knew who he was, and he knew who God was, and he knew there's no power in himself. Joseph understood the future is determined by God, not by kings. And his own dreams remain intact. He's confident that one day his family would come and bow to him. And now he can see that that's possible. But he's going to obediently wait for God to bring it about. So from Palestine to the Sinai to Egypt, Joseph's defining virtue is this massive view of God. Joseph's view of God exceeds really anyone else on the planet at that time. 
You got to take that to heart. God's servants, the ones who have been used by God the most, have always been both informed and defined by their God. Joseph stood above everyone in the world in this massive understanding of God. No one on earth saw God as he did or believed God as he did. And that's why he does so well when he's yanked out of prison and thrust before Pharaoh. Indeed, his focus on God is essentially the same, no matter where he is. He's the same man in prison and in the palace, as he declared to Pharaoh, who himself uh, thought he was a god. And he tells Pharaoh that the true God would answer his dreams. So when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, three times he names God as both the source and the sovereign interpreter of those dreams. And Pharaoh is so overwhelmed, he exalts Joseph and his God, asking that great question in verse 38. Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? And so, on the spot, right then, Pharaoh ceremonially uh, bestows upon Joseph all the paraphernalia of power. He removes the signet ring from his own hand, and puts it on Joseph's hand. And the signet ring bears the name of Pharaoh. It's used to press his seal onto official documents, delegating to Joseph the ability to operate with Pharaoh-like authority. Second, he's decked out in fine linen. That's worn normally by uh, the court officials, by the royal officials. And so now Joseph is going to be clad in the garments of the rich and powerful. And third, he gets a gold chain that's hung around his neck as a gift, a symbol of a highest distinction, and it's a great value. So it also serves as a reward as well as a symbol of honor. So he gets all these visible signs of power. And then he's given an inaugural parade. A pharaoh makes him ride in the second chariot with runners going before him and crying out, bow the knee. In sort of modern-day terms, you could imagine that you know chariots are kind of like the limousines of their day. And it's arranged that Joseph's going to ride in style, and the men going before him are kind of like the Secret Service agents um, that are going before the important dignitaries in the United States. It's that sort of situation where he's in the chariot, but there's these men on both sides, and they have little microphones in their ear and you know, uh, you know listening devices and stuff and they wore black suits and sunglasses, and they all looked the same, or whatever the, you know, 1800 B.C. equivalent of that was, probably like big giant spears or something. But you think about what an incredible rush this must have been for Joseph. He's been bowing to everybody else for the last 13 years of his life. He was the hey-you guy, both in Potiphar's house and in prison, where he served Pharaoh's uh, servants. And now he's in a royal chariot that's plowing through the crowds that are just dividing in front of him like the sea. And it's pretty heady stuff. And on top of all this, he gets uh, the formal words of investiture, the bestowal of authority from Pharaoh in verse 44, where Pharaoh says, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That is, no action can be taken without your okay. You think about what's happened here. In the morning, he wakes up in a dirty, stinking uh, prison. 
And I can only imagine what an, you know, 18th or 19th century B.C. Egyptian prison is like. But I'm imagining it that it's pretty bad. And by nightfall, he's sitting in the palace. He's got designer clothes. He's got servants fanning him. His menu is drawn from the best cuisine of the Nile. His stable has chauffeured limos ready to transport him anywhere through worshipful crowds. It's an amazing story. You know, even J.K. Rowling, it took 10 years. This is a day. Wakes up in prison, goes to bed in the palace. But there's something else going on here that it's important not to miss. Because it's evident that Pharaoh is trying to, uh, or is intent on Egyptianizing, I don't even know if that's a word, it is now, Egyptianizing Joseph. He gives him a new name and a new wife. Verse 45, Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath-Paneah, which means God speaks and lives. Despite the fact that the name is Egyptian, it's an ongoing testimony to the superiority of Joseph's God, who speaks and lives. So Joseph's new name uh, sort of encapsulates divine reality. <coughs> now, an Egyptian name is one thing, but an Egyptian wife is quite another thing. You see how thoroughly here Pharaoh intends Joseph to become an Egyptian, to be identified with Egypt. <coughs> His wife, Esenath, she's an aristocrat. She is the daughter of Potiphera, priest of An. She's of high-born lineage, so much so that the pharaohs would choose their own wives from this family. And the city of An is also known by the Greek name of Heliopolis, means sun city. Today it lies about 10 miles northeast of Cairo. The, the remains of the city are still there. And the center of worship, uh, uh, it was the center of worship for the sun god Ra. And as the priest of An, her father presides over this temple city of Heliopolis, officiates at all the major uh, festivals, supervises all the other priests. And so uh, Joseph gets this aristocratic wife. It leaves him very well connected and in great danger of becoming an Egyptian, of Egyptianization. Again, I don't know if that's a word or not, but it is now. And his clothing is Egyptian, and his name is Egyptian, and his language is Egyptian, and his wife is Egyptian, and his father-in-law is the leading Egyptian sun worshiper. And he begins his married life listening to him sung in the morning uh, at the sunrise, sung to the sun god in his own house. And Joseph's soul is in greater peril than at any other time in his life. It's one thing to remain believing in God-centered and faithful in prison. It's quite another to be faithful at the pinnacle of power. Prison instills dependence upon God. Days, months, and years in prison had graced Joseph's soul with this ever-deepening sense of need and dependence upon God. There's only one way to look in prison, and that's up towards God. But on the other hand, now the pinnacle of Egyptian life, you don't look up, you look down. 
sort of inclines you towards independence and pride. You know, at the top, looking up isn't natural. It's far easier for Joseph to look down on others, to depend on servants to meet his needs. And the fact that his name, speech, clothing, and wife are Egyptian are all encouraging him to forget where he came from. Also, the undeniable brilliance of his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream and his plan to spare Egypt could well have given him a sense of superiority. After all, it was Pharaoh himself said, there was no one as discerning and wise as you are. You know, I'm sure he put that on his business card. Life at the top can make people imagine themselves to be so original and so wise and that they're deserving of all that they have. An extended time at the top can work an ugliness in our soul. All you have to do is pick up the paper or watch the news. You see that kind of ugliness in people who've had this meteoric rise, whether it's a pro athlete or a musician or some media personality or even and perhaps especially the children of the rich and famous. And accordingly, Joseph, second only to Pharaoh at the ripe old age of 30, a handsome man with great intelligence, uh, recently risen from nowhere and now living in relentless luxury, he's in great danger. But he responds rather well to it all. He doesn't assume the lifestyle of the Niles rich and famous. He responds with an obedience that characterizes true faith. That is, he believes that Egypt would have just seven years of plenty to gather up the grain for the seven years of famine. And so we see that this rise to power doesn't dull his response to God's word because he immediately gives himself to hard work. And the pace of his activity is underscored by all the repetition of what he does in the following verses that describe his work. We're going to turn to the years of plenty, verses 46 to 49. We're not going to spend a lot of time on years of plenty or famine um, because they're really not the main point. But we read here, verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. So the agriculture of the Nile is not based on the rain that falls in Egypt because very little rain ever falls on Egypt, or particularly in the Nile Valley but it's based on the spring floods that come from the rains that are far away in the upper Nile Basin. Now the Nile uh, flows south to north. So the lower Nile is in the north and the upper Nile is in the south. So it's kind of, we automatically think about it the other way around, but that's not the way it is. And Joseph immediately goes out throughout all the land of Egypt, surveys uh, the agricultural scene, storage facilities, no doubt building uh, more, and now for seven consecutive years presides over storing 20% of all the crops. So the result is what the text tells us is an immeasurable amount of grain that's stored in every strategic city. And so his work ethic is apparent to everyone. 
But what wasn't apparent is that it all comes from his deep belief in God's word. God revealed this to him, and he believes it and orders his life around it. Joseph's faith hasn't shriveled with this rise to power. His belief remains constant. And God rewards that deep faith by giving him two sons of promise. Look to verse 50, sons of promise. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So now we read that Joseph and Asenath have two sons. It's important to introduce them into the story because they have a key role later on. But it also shows that God is continuing to bless Joseph. And he names his two sons Manasseh and Ephraim. Now Manasseh means he who causes to forget. And the birth of that boy helps Joseph to forget the appalling hardship of those last 13 years in Egypt. It also eases his uh, intense longing for his father and his siblings. Manasseh brightens his life. Ephraim means fertile, and it just celebrates not just the birth of his second son, but the bounty that Joseph is experiencing and gathering in uh, all the grain of Egypt and all the blessing that has now come to him in his life. And he's celebrating his blessings. He's filled with gratitude and hope. But here's the great thing about this. And you can't miss this or you don't understand why that's inserted into the story. Because with these two sons, Joseph is making a profession of faith. He's giving his allegiance to God, his faith in God's word, by giving his boys Hebrew names. Remember, Joseph himself has been renamed with an Egyptian name, Zephanath-Paniah. His wife is Asenath, which means she who belongs to the goddess Neit, which references her uh, idolatrous Egyptian ancestry. But the names of his sons amidst the aristocracy of Egypt are dramatically and blatantly Hebrew. Remember, the Pharaoh's goal was to make him an Egyptian he had a program of Egyptianization. I have to practice that word. And now Joseph reasserts his origins, ethnic origins, spiritual origins. And at this moment of history, Joseph not only understands the greatness of God as no other living person, he believes in God more. Or he believes in God as no other living person. But there's a dark side to this as well, because the names not only tell us of Joseph's trust in God's providence, but they tell us about Joseph's pain. And that's interesting, because Moses doesn't open that window very far. He doesn't tell us much about Joseph's soul. And in this whole cycle, we're always, we're always told about Joseph's circumstances. We're actually very rarely given information about Joseph personally. You know, if an American in the 21st century had written this story, three-quarters of it would have been describing the emotional state of Joseph's soul, you know? Moses didn't go to that writing school. He simply gives us this small glimpse, and you see it in the words here about the names. God has made me to forget all my trouble. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
clearly with everything that's happened to Joseph, he thinks there's one ache that can't be healed. God had helped him to forget his trouble in his father's household. Isn't that a strange thing to say? God has helped me to forget all my father's house. Now, if you had a wonderful relationship with your father, would you think of that? No, he's thinking of his brothers too, but that phrase, he's helped me to forget all my father's house. I think Moses is telling us that Joseph can only cope with the pain through this sort of self-enforced amnesia. And he's thankful that in some way God had enabled him to forget. And he thought that's the only medicine that could ever exist for this particular pain. And so the way he uses these two names uh, characterize his life as filled with trouble and affliction. Now I wonder if all those jealous Egyptian counselors are looking at Joseph and said, there's a man full of trouble and affliction with his fine garments and gold chain and signet ring and chariots. And, and so we see Joseph has all the success in his public life, and yet his private life is a life of pain. And at this point, Joseph doesn't know the rest of God's providence. He doesn't think he's ever going to see his family again. He doesn't know what, you know, he doesn't get the rest of the chapters like we have to look forward. And we see he trusts in God's providence. There is some measure of contentment, but there is sort of this resignation. He's resigned himself to just ache and pain in that one area of his life. And the best he can hope for is just simply to forget it. And God's going to show Joseph that his plan for Joseph is better than anything Joseph can dream of. And that's God's grace. And that's God's love. And he loves to bring blessing where only trouble and curse exist. And that's certainly what happens next. The world is going to be subjected to severe famine. And through Joseph, God is going to bring blessing. So we don't just see famine here, but we see famine and preservation. Verse 53. So we have these monstrous seven cows and seven ears of grain. And they're going to cannibalize the seven plump cows and ears of grain. And so the seven years of famine are as bad as the seven years of bounty were good. And the Genesis description here uses the word famine five times, twice saying it's severe, starting at verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, I said before, the Nile sort of agribusiness is dependent on flooding. And Nahum Sarna is a, actually a Hebrew uh, scholar. And he explains, he says, Lower Egypt, which is the northern area of the country, is virtually rainless. Its entire economy, which in ancient times agriculture was the core, always depended upon the Nile floods caused by the river's rise during the summer months. And the swelling of the river results from torrential rains in the upper Nile Basin 
being carried down to the delta by the Blue Nile. We talk about this, we're thinking like rains in Harper's Ferry, Potomac fills up, we get water in Leesburg. That's not the case. This is rain and snow in northern Minnesota so that we have flooding in Mississippi. Okay, we're talking somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 miles away. And they probably don't even know what's happening in that part. It's like couldn't look it up on weather.com. You know, I mean, the floods came or they didn't. And the floods came with regularity, but there are years when the rainfall at the headwaters of the Nile, which are actually in the South Sudan, which is now a country, provides an insufficient volume of water. And a shortfall of only a few inches can deny irrigation to all the arid parts of the northern uh, land of Egypt, and it brings famine. So whenever the Nile failed to rise, there's misery. They needed the flooding. Their lives depended upon flooding. And Egyptian records indicate that famine had become so bad several times in history, the Egyptians resorted to cannibalism. And now the famine is rendered more severe by this unusual combination of the rains failing to fall, not just the headwaters of the Nile, but the text tells us in all the lands. So everywhere around Egypt, too. It involves everyone in all the earth. And had it not been for the carrying out of Joseph's plan, mass starvation would have followed, not just in Egypt, but throughout the Middle East. And so all the earth, we're told, came to Joseph to be saved. And that reveals to us the provision of salvation. For those who believe life at the top is a perilous pursuit. And it could have been for Joseph as well. I mean, he's thrown into the pit, then he's head of Potiphar's house, then he's thrown in prison, and now he's head of the country. Up and down. But he maintains three distinctives throughout. First, he has this transcending belief in the greatness of God. He understands God controls everything, controls all of life, the day in, day out events of life, good or bad, no matter what's going on, he understands God is great. Second, he believes God's word that's been revealed to him through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He believes in the covenant promises. He believes in the God-given dreams. He believes all this without exception. And it's remarkable. And if you go through the Bible, I mean, that's how Moses would later stand before Pharaoh. That's how Daniel would stand before the king of Babylon. That's how the apostle Paul would stand before the courts of Rome. And that's how Martin Luther would stand before the world. They all believed God's word. And then finally, he believed that God was with him, both in the pit and at the pinnacle. In the face of every political, uh, social, spiritual force in Egypt, he gives his sons Hebrew names. His belief in God's greatness more than any other man, his belief in God's word more than any other man, his belief that God is with him in God's presence more than any of his contemporaries is a template for us no matter what our age. And it's important because we live in an age of affluence. I told the teen Sunday school class, 
it's possible for an upper middle class adult in Loudoun County, Virginia today to live with greater ease and independence than did the Pharaoh in Egypt so that he never has to look for God to God for anything. Success is spiritually dangerous. And what amazing success came to Joseph. Our text finishes, it says, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Joseph is the hero. He saves everyone. All the earth named Joseph as their savior. Now we see also the fulfillment of God's word going all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But we also see here the shadow of the real savior. We see get a better glimpse of what does it mean when we use the phrase, the Savior of the world. The end of Genesis 41, we see how the people who had been warned by Joseph, but probably like most people anywhere, ate as much as they could during the good years, and they come during the bad years, and it says they're crying out to Pharaoh for food. And Pharaoh's reply, I think this is great, verse 55, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. What he, what he tells you, do that. You know, we live in a day in which the world's rulers have all sorts of frightening visions about what's going to happen to our world. You know, we're going to have famine, runaway population growth. We're going to exhaust all of our natural resources. We're going to face endless war. And even in the most favored countries, the most favored times, the produce of plenty isn't enough to go around. They're already saying the next two great weapons of modern warfare over the next hundred years are going to be food and water. We don't normally think of those as weapons. But if you read about what's coming, that's what they're saying. The nations of the world, particularly of the Western world, have forsaken God. God's bringing them to the point of despair. But despair isn't necessary. Disaster isn't predetermined. God's man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come. And just as the great king of Egypt told the starving people of his day to go to Joseph, so the true king of the universe commands men and women everywhere today to go to Jesus. He says, go to Jesus. What he says, do that. Are you hungry for spiritual things? John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Are you thirsty? John 7, on the last day of feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Are you tired? He invites you to come. Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he gives you the promise, John 6 again, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The Bible tells us that everyone who comes receives. That great line from Isaiah 
55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That verse is repeated at the end of the Bible, at the end of Revelation, as I'm sure you remember. The last line of Genesis 41 says, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph. So today, if famine has you in its grasp, if there's some spiritual lack in your life, you're hungry and thirsty for spiritual things, you may be hungry and thirsty for physical things. There's something missing. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's, you know, something's missing from your job. Maybe there's something missing here this morning. But you notice there's something not there that you want. And this famine has you in its grasp. The whole counsel of the word of God is you must go to Jesus and do what he tells you. That starts by confessing your sin and receiving him as Savior. And so I invite you to come to his table and to do just that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Lord, it is easy to talk about faith, but it's hard to believe. It's easy to talk about obedience, but it's hard to obey. It's easy to talk about providence, and it's hard to be patient. It's easy to tell people to go to Jesus, but it's hard to go. Thank you that when we were still far off, you met us in your son, and you brought us home. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Thank you for welcoming us home. Thank you for such costly love. We thank you for all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. While the worship team gets set, God is good and God is great. If we learn anything from the life of Joseph, learn that. That when you think God isn't doing anything and he has forgotten about you, the life of Joseph should remind you that God is always good and he is always great, no matter what. Receive God's blessing if you would stand with me. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless you. Let's go have lunch. Amen.